Uh, you can turn them to Acts 21. And we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of that chapter today. For the last two weeks, Carlton has spent time in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Very clearly in this passage, Paul laid out for them God's call uh, to pastors and uh, God's warning for pastors. And we know that Paul was a spiritual father to the Ephesian elders. He actually planted that church. And as Carlton showed us, his admonitions to these men came straight from his heart. And uh, in our text this morning, what we're going to see is Paul uh, leaving, departing, and continuing on his way to Jerusalem. But before we read our passage, uh, it's important that you know why he's going to Jerusalem. And so I want to recall a couple of texts for you. You don't have to turn to these, but um, back in Acts 19, 21, right after the story of the sons of Sceva, we read that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So we know that Paul was resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Then in Acts 20, 16, we see that Paul sails past Ephesus, which was why those Ephesian elders had to come down to Miletus, because he was hastening, the scriptures say, or hurrying to be at Jerusalem for Pentecost. So Paul has made up his mind that Jerusalem is where the Lord was taking him, and so he says his goodbyes to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, and that's where we pick up in our text this morning. All right? So let's read Acts 21, 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we, when we entered the house, uh, we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this bell and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menanson of Cyprus, an early disciple. 
with whom we should lodge. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your truth this morning, eyes to see your glory. Jesus, may we behold your glory this morning. Amen. So in the first three verses of our text this morning, we see a whole bunch of traveling plans. Uh, Now, uh, these plans would make more sense to us if we knew the area. For instance, if it text read that Paul began in Jacksonville, hitched a ride to Alexandria, stopped by some friends in Saks, and then skipped Anniston by taking the bypass over to Oxford, uh, we would get a little, bit of, a little bit more context for all of these different arrangements and stops because we know the landscape. But the text doesn't tell us a whole lot of information about these stops, which means Luke probably includes them for the readers in that day. These voyages and selling patterns would have made perfect sense to those people and would have probably even given them insight about uh, the routes, the the routes that Paul had taken and why he took those. And this might be difficult for us to grasp. But what we can take away from all of these different stops, as well as the rest of the stops we're going to see throughout this morning's text, is that Paul was loved and welcomed by Christians everywhere, everywhere. Uh, All throughout our text this morning, we'll see the apostle dropping in different places and being loved on, being shown hospitality. And we can't say enough about Christian community, right? Like it is vital for the life of the believer to sustain them for the mission, And these were brothers and sisters, Uh, these brothers and sisters weren't just locations on a map, they were faces, faces of people that Paul had ministered to and that Paul loved. And in verse 4, we see that Paul is meeting with the disciples of Tyre. Uh, What you don't know by just reading this is that this would have been one of the very first places Paul ever ministered, it's right here in Tyre. And so I'm sure this was an extra special stop for him. And There was probably extra special love between him and these first disciples of his. You know, I remember the first place I ever ministered. um, And by God's grace, I think there's only one other person in this room this morning that was part of that ministry. Um, While that ministry holds a special place in my heart, those people hold a special place in my heart. When I think back upon my leadership at that time, I normally just shake my head and think, oh, the patience of our God. We serve a patient God. And so I'm sure Paul had some of the same sentiment as he's revisiting some of the very first disciples uh, that he stopped and made. So Paul's enjoying fellowship with these Christians. And what we read in the latter part of verse 4 is that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And this is where we find our first issue in the text. So I want you to see, look at your text. It says, this is the wording. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. All right? At first glance, it seems that the body of believers are being used by the Holy Spirit as a mouthpiece to keep Paul from going to Jerusalem. And this wouldn't be the first time something like this happened. Uh, 
Paul had already dealt with the Spirit redirecting him on his missionary journeys. Luke records for us in Acts 16 that on Paul's second missionary journey, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So God's Spirit redirecting Paul's journey is nothing new. But it seems here in today's text that Paul doesn't listen to them. Because the next thing we read in verses 5 and 6 is that Paul is saying goodbye and continuing on his way to Jerusalem. So this provokes an obvious question, uh, what's going on? Why is Paul not listening to the Holy Spirit? Or is he not listening to the Holy Spirit? Or maybe these believers aren't truly speaking by the Holy Spirit, even though Luke says that they are. Most commentators and myself believe that Paul is being warned by God's Spirit that danger awaits him in Jerusalem. Therefore, these believers are telling him not to go there. Do you see the delineation? And this would just seem normal, right? Uh, we all want to avoid grave danger, I would think. And so if someone tells you or gives you a warning that danger awaits the road that you're on, you would typically want to leave that path, right? Like divert around the danger. But this isn't what we see Paul do. He continues on. He stays the course. So after a sappy beach farewell that I'm sure included tears, Paul boards a ship and sets sail to Ptolemaeus. Again, we see him meet up with more disciples, spend time with them for a day, and then he's off to Caesarea. Now in Caesarea, he goes and he stays with Philip the Evangelist, who we're told is one of the seven. Now the seven is a reference, some of you may have picked it up, uh, and you've got a good memory, uh, back to Acts 6, where we have the first deacons inaugurated in their place. The first seven deacons. Um, so we could think of Philip and those first seven deacons as the OGs. And Philip is now referred to uh, as the evangelist. That's what we see him called because obviously he loved to share the gospel and was gifted by God's spirit to do so with incredible effectiveness. Luke also adds that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That kind of freaks us out, doesn't it? If we're honest, maybe not. Now, we're not exactly sure why Luke gives us this detail, but we do know that if nothing else, it points to the age that they and we are living in. The age that Joel prophesied about in Joel 2.28, the age where God says he'll pour his spirit out on all men your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And this is what we've seen throughout the whole book of Acts. God's spirit coming to dwell with his people, all the redeemed, giving them gifts for the edification of his people. So we can assume that Paul and his entourage are being ministered to by the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given Philip and his daughters. And just while we're here, I want to make an important Side note that we can see about Philip's daughters. In the first century, the world viewed women at best as second class citizens. 
But church, that is not how God nor his people view women. Our gracious Father gives his daughters such wonderful gifts to bless the church and serve him. And at Grace Fellowship, we hold to the biblical position that gives women equal dignity, equal gifting, and equal status in the kingdom of God. And we know from nature, things like childbirth and scripture, right from the jump in Genesis 1 and 2, that men and women, while equal, carry out different roles in the world and in the church. And this diversity is such a blessing when understood rightly. And that's exactly what we see here in our text. Philip and his daughters functioning in their giftedness to edify Paul and the people with him. Yeah. So we then read in verse 10 that after they've been there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We read that this prophet took Paul's belt. Now can you imagine this? He walks in and picks up Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and he says this, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, now here we go. Luke records for us an explicit word-for-word prophecy from Agabus. God's Spirit is telling Paul and everyone else that Paul will be taken prisoner if he chooses to go. And now look at the next verse. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go. That's what happened. So this second prophecy or word from the Holy Spirit confirms what we thought to be the case in the first prophecy. The first warning wasn't a warning by the Holy Spirit to not go down to Jerusalem. The first warning was a warning that danger awaited Paul. And now these disciples in Caesarea, just like the other disciples in Tyre, urge Paul not to go. Why? Danger awaits. But look at Paul's response in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Wow. Paul's face was set. Like he had been moved by God's spirit to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. His mind was made up. He would not be deterred. He was staying the course. So you might ask then, well, why does the Holy Spirit show these two groups of people and possibly others that danger awaited Paul, if not to stop him? Like didn't God know that this would cause the people fear, cause them to worry, leading to possible confusion and panic, and maybe resulting in Paul not going to Jerusalem? Like, God, why give the warning? Why have this moment of pleading and weeping? Well, there's probably several possible uh, conclusions as to why the Spirit would show Paul what he was to do. And then show others the danger that awaited him. 
But one reason could be for Paul to give his disciples and friends one last lesson on what's of ultimate importance. You see, Paul saw his life as not his own. Like he had truly given his whole life as a living sacrifice to King Jesus. Paul's heart belonged to God. Paul's outward profession was a true testament to his inward affections. Therefore, everything in Paul's life, including disaster, became an opportunity to display the glory and majesty of God. You see, the glory of God was what was of ultimate importance to Paul. And this conviction led him to see something like imprisonment and death so differently than those around him. He didn't see something as, he didn't see death as something to run from or be scared of. He saw death as the doorway that led to standing face to face with Jesus. He even viewed the possibility of his own death as the ultimate display of the worth of God's glory. And this is what led him to tell the Ephesian elders on his previous stop, I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and my ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Church, this is why Paul was able to stay the course. Besides this, the, the news of suffering that... Uh, suffering awaited him wasn't really news to him at all. He told the Ephesian elders in last week's text, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You see, despite the knowledge of bad circumstances and situations, Paul had made up his mind that the main determiner in all of his decisions would be the glory of God. When he analyzed different situations and circumstances, his thought process is which of these decisions that I have will put the glory of Christ on its greatest display for the world to see. And this was his reason for wanting to be in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Pentecost marked the day when God came and dwelt in man. God desired for his people to worship him in spirit and truth. Paul wanted to proclaim this to his kinfolk, the Jews. He longed for them to know the marvelous work that their God had done through his perfect son, Jesus, and how he's perfecting that work through his spirit inside of them. He wanted them to know that the old had passed away, and behold, the new has come. And this was also a perfect time to deliver the monetary gift from the other churches. This in itself would be an incredible witness to the Jerusalem church, which was essentially the mother church of all these other church plants. Now these church plants, many of whom didn't observe Jewish customs, were now lovingly and sacrificially giving back to support a very needy Jerusalem church. Paul knew this would preach. 
So he, fed, he set his face toward Jerusalem despite persecution, despite imprisonment warnings, despite pleadings from his disciples. And upon seeing that he wouldn't be persuaded, look at verse 14. It says, they ceased their pleading and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Man, let the will of the Lord be done. Church, as I've reflected uh, this past week on this text, I've been personally very convicted. Convicted by my lack of zeal. Convicted by my lack of focus on the mission of God. Convicted by my lack of trust in the will of the Lord. Convicted by my fear of discomfort and possible suffering. Convicted by my decision-making process. It is much more concerned with my own selfish desires than the glory of our God. So I've been led to ask the question, why? Why am I so often distracted from what's of ultimate importance? Why am I prone to make decisions based on what's best for me rather than what would bring God who redeemed me the most glory? And this question has led me to examine my thought life. I started contemplating and even writing down all of the thoughts that are constantly bouncing around in my head every day. See if any of these resonate with you. Am I going to be late? That's usually every morning. Do I have anything nice to wear? Probably not. How much money do we have? When's my first appointment? What are we doing this weekend? When will summer get here? I need to get to the gym. Why is my Amazon package late again? How am I ever going to finish this project? Why is my car making this noise? Am I putting enough into retirement? My grass needs cutting. See, if these are the kinds of things we spend most of our time thinking about, and I think they, they might be, we won't have any space for questions like these. Who in this grocery store doesn't know Jesus? What can I do to be a blessing to my community? How can I disciple my children to love Jesus? How can I show my coworker the love of Christ today? Is our family where God wants us to be? How can we be more of a blessing to Jesus' bride? How can we rearrange our lives to have more rest and margin? Am I loving my wife like Christ loves his church? Who in the body is hurting? When can I set aside more time for prayer? Now, the way we often think about this second set of questions is, goodness, I really don't have much time left over for those types of questions on a weekly basis. But this is bad thinking. When Christ calls us to himself in salvation, he says things like this, seek first the kingdom of God 
and all these things will be provided for you. He says things like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If anyone would try to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake, he will find it. You see, all the little mundane things of life aren't bad. Taking time to get your car checked out so you don't end up on the side of the road is actually a wise move. Having grass that's knee-high because you've chosen to read your Bible instead of cutting it doesn't make you any more spiritual. But the problem lies when we make these mundane, necessary issues ultimate in how we live and structure our lives. Some people call this the tail wagging the dog. Paul knew he had to find ways to move about the ancient world in order to plant churches and deliver offerings to Jerusalem. But it seems that his travel plans never trumped the work that God had called him to. It seems that where he was going to eat and sleep never dictated whether he could be active in ministry or not. It seems that his comfort or security never trumped where God desired to take him. Paul said, I feel compelled to go back to Jerusalem. And this was followed by lots of warnings to not do that. Warnings that told him, your ministry will be over. You will be imprisoned. You could possibly lose your life. And all of these factors were delivered to him for his consideration. And yet he still stayed the course. Why? Because Paul's mind was set in order. He would later write in Romans 12, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if what you take away from today's message is that living for the glory of God means blowing past all wise cautions that you were given by those around you, then you missed it. That's not what Paul did. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul listened to his friends. He listened to his counselors. He listened to wisdom. And he waited out. And he came to the conclusion that what God wanted him to do in Jerusalem was worth his imprisonment. That's bold. That's courageous. And church, it's precisely what God calls us to do. Jesus tells us in Luke 14, 28 to count the cost. Jesus never did a bait and switch with anybody. He never said, well, just come and hang out with me. And if you feel like being radical, that's cool. And if you feel like playing it safe, man, that's cool too. No. No, following Christ is not a choose your own adventure. There's multiple paths. Christ is the path. Abiding in him is the way. Salvation is becoming one with Jesus, which is why Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. And listen, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, the gospel that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So what does this abiding look like? What does this oneness with Christ look like? Well, just as Jesus trusted his Father, so now we trust our Heavenly Father. Just as Jesus sought the glory of God, so we now seek the glory of God. Just as Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours, so church, we pray, not my will, but yours. Just as Jesus gave his life a ransom for many, now we also, church, lay our lives down so that others may come to know our God. But there's more to this last statement. Because while we are called to lay our lives down for others, Jesus laid his life down in a very unique way that is much different than us. Thus, making him much more than our example. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our redeemer. And before Jesus ever condescended to the earth, he knew what awaited him. And yet, he stayed the course. When Jesus came to his own, he knew that he would be rejected. And he stayed the course. When Jesus came to the sick and hurting, he knew the anguish it would bring him, and he stayed the course. When Jesus faced off with the religious leaders, he knew the charges they would bring against him, but he stayed the course. When Jesus took Peter and the twelve to the garden, he knew that all of them would let him down, but he stayed the course. As Jesus contemplated the wrath of God for sinners, he knew the pain and suffering which caused him to sweat blood as he cried out to the Father, is there another way? And there wasn't. So he stayed the course. For the joy set before him, which was the glory of his Father through the salvation of his brothers and sisters, though he be poured out like a drink offering, he would stay this course. So when we look at our text this morning and wonder, why would Paul stay the course even though he knows it's not going to be good for him? The answer is because he's seeing with different eyes. He's weighing things out rightly. And every time he puts anything else on the scale with the glory of God, the scales fall hard. Revealing that the glory of our God is worth so much more. More than our comfort. More than our success. More than our security. More than our 401k. More than our career. More than our homes. And more than our very own lives. He's worth more, church. Our God loves us. And he wants us to live in this world truly as his kids, his children. And how does a child of the sovereign God of the universe live? In freedom. Freedom from worry. 
freedom from doubt, freedom from insecurity, fear, and turmoil, freedom that accepts whatever the Lord may will. For our God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Church, when we were dead in sin, we had no hope. We had every reason to be afraid and tremble at even the slightest affliction because the end of our life meant the beginning of eternal suffering. Therefore, our life in this world was everything to us. Oh, no. But our God, in fierce love and determination, chose to sacrifice his only son on our behalf. This would mean that Jesus would take on our sin, our wickedness, our turmoil, and he would bear it up on himself. He would be nailed to a tree and receive the cup of God's wrath poured out for sin. And like I tell my children, he would die so that we wouldn't have to. But he would also rise. And three days later, he would show that death is no longer an enemy that needs to be feared by those who trust in him because he conquered it. Once and for all, death has lost its sting. And this is our text. Our Savior, our victor, empowering Paul by his spirit, according to the truth of the gospel, to stay the course. And church, I can promise you, he will empower you and I to stay the course as well. <laughs> oh, what a gift our God has given us in salvation. Amen? A glorious inheritance. A promised eternal home that is eternally secure. And what confidence this gives us, knowing that when we breathe our last we will stand before him perfected for all time. But church, what a gift he's given us right now to live fearlessly, sold out for his glory, counting the cost and finding him worthy. So my admonition to you today, I guess you... I've already heard it a hundred times. Let's stay the course. Let's stay the course together. And if you're here this morning and you've never given yourself to Jesus, I want you to know Revelation 3.20 says, he stands at the door and knocks. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So Carlton's going to come now. And we're going to respond to this truth in faith by receiving the Lord's Supper. Thank you for preaching the word today. We do want to stay the course that the Lord has given us as people. Communion is one of the ways that we experience the grace necessary to stay on track as believers. It draws us near to Jesus, and it binds our hearts together as a people in the Spirit.
Communion is a special meal that is to be taken by believers only. And it's not allowable for unbelievers or unrepentant believers to take the Lord's Supper. This is why the Lord tells us to restrict some from the table of the Lord. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus says this. 